going to invite um, Alex to come, and uh, he is going to read scripture for us. Haggai chapter 1, Haggai chapter 1, and let me, let's stand together as uh, the word of God is read. We will pray after we read, and we'll jump into God's word. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does soap to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together, Lord, of fellowshipping together, of spending time, Lord, praising you in song, and uh, Lord, even in giving. And Lord, now as we gather around your word, as we humble ourselves before it, Lord, would you give us hearts that are teachable? Would you give us uh, Lord, a willingness, Lord, to truly desire to do your will, Lord, that if there is some sin that is hindering us, Lord, that we would be soft and we would be pliable, Lord, to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us through your word. Allow me, Lord, simply to be your mouthpiece, your messenger, and Lord, may you be glorified today, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, a good number of years ago, uh, I was uh, an associate pastor in Michigan, and um, um, I was uh, always wanting to be involved in the athletic programs in some way, shape, or form as they, they practiced. There was a church that had a school, and um, the basketball team was getting together, and they were having practice, and so I thought, I'm going to jump in, and I'm going I'm to go and practice with them and go through all the routines that they went through, and um, I found myself just really getting short of breath and, and losing my ability to keep up with them, although I was determined to be a good example for the guys that are there. And um, I had to actually pull myself away from the practice. It wasn't just playing basketball. They are doing all these really, really heavy drills. And I went into an office, and I sat, and I could just, my hands were getting numb, my breath was getting short, and, and I finally made my way out to the lobby of the church. I called my wife and said, you need to come get me. I can't drive right now. And and uh, she came, and while she was coming, I was just laying down, just trying to figure out what was going on in the world. And uh, she finally got there, and we were concerned. 
Um, nothing like this had ever happened to me before. And so we went to the doctor and he said, oh, this is really simple, you were hyperventilating. And Rod, he, he said, Rod, you, you just need to remember how old you are. <laughs> um, and for me, that was a wake-up call, so to speak, as far as my physical condition and my desire to want to hang with the guys, so to speak. I needed to learn, and it was a humbling way to do it. I mean, it happened in front of all of these players, uh, with all the people that were there, and uh, it was hard to take. But it was a time for me to be honest about myself and a time for me to force myself to look long and hard at my health and my conditioning and say, you know, I just can't keep up with these guys like maybe I want to. And you know, I still love to play sports, but I also have to know my limitations. I have to know, you know, because I am I'm heading off to that, that big 5-0 in a couple of years here. Believe it or not, I know it's hard to imagine, but it's true. I still have to be careful. And um, today we're coming to a book in the Bible uh, that I just believe God has directed us to as we've transitioned now from the Gospel of John, and it's the book of Haggai. Haggai, you might say, where is that? Well, I know we read Scripture today, but let me just, just mention to you that Haggai is not a Scottish delicacy, okay? That's haggis, and trust me, you do not want to eat it, okay? This is Haggai. It's a minor prophet, and it's probably one of the shortest books that there is in the Old Testament, but it's a minor prophet, not because the message is less significant than the other prophets. It has more to do with the size and the content of that, um, that prophetical book and, and not necessarily the impact or the importance of the prophet um, that, is, that God is using to speak his word to the people through. And when we come to a minor prophet, what's really, really important for us to do is to understand the historical context. Because historical context gives us the picture and the context into which this message now is brought. So our goal this morning is really going to be twofold. First of all, we're going to take time to establish that context. Um, and then we are going to look at the first of four messages, at least the first part of the first of four messages in this book of Haggai. But let me preface now this study of God's word this morning by directing your attention to a word or a phrase that we find repeated in this particular book. And you'll find it in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 15, and also in verse 18. And it is the expression, consider your ways. This is, this is God speaking through Haggai to his people who are in Jerusalem, and he's saying, I want you to pay very careful attention to what is going on in your life. I want you to seriously look hard and long at your situation, at your condition, at what you are going through. Consider your way, the word way, the idea there is it's a road. So there's a sense in which you not only look at the road you're on, but you look at the road you have been on, and you look at the road where it's going. So this is taking a hard look as to why are you where you are today. So to give careful thought to your ways, self-judgment, self-examination, self-evaluation in the context of what is God doing in my life. Now friends, God wants us to do that. He wants us to take time to look long and hard at our spiritual health. Are you willing to be honest this morning? Are you willing to, uh, to allow the Holy Spirit to begin a work in your 
heart, if, if something is exposed, if something is demonstrated by God to you, are you willing to consider what God is saying? Are you willing to listen to the Holy Spirit uh, through His Word and, and rekindle this passion for God in your life? Let's begin now again at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And I want you to notice, uh, as we begin here, three things. There's a particular moment, a particular man, a particular message that we need to think through as we think about the introduction. First of all, the particular moment in time. A particular moment in time. God's people had drifted back into sin. And because of their sin, God was bringing judgment on both Israel and Judah. And in 622 uh, B.C., the northern tribes of Israel are taken captive by the Assyrians. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar destroy the city of Jerusalem, including Solomon's temple, and take Judah, that's the, the south, captive into exile. That's the whole story of Daniel going off there, if you remember. Now, Judah spends 70 years in captivity, away from the comforts of Jerusalem. But God was in control the whole time. Even in judgment, even in punishment, God is in control. Look in your Bibles at Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. I want you to see what God says. Even in the context of judgment being exercised, Jeremiah 29 verse 10 says this, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Talking about Jerusalem. Judgment's coming, but this is my promise. Then Isaiah 44 and verse 28, we're told there that God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Now Cyrus was the, the leader of Babylon at that time. And it says here, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And so here we have Judah having the promise that even in their judgment, they're going to be able to come back the city is going to be rebuilt. The temple is going to be restored. And it was all going to happen through this leader, Cyrus. And so there are three exiles from Babylon that took place. The exiles meaning returning from, from that exile back to Jerusalem. And the first one happens in 538 B.C. under Zerubbabel. Does that name sound familiar from what we've just read? I know it's probably not one of your child's middle names, but it's a familiar name here at least, especially in, in this era. There's also a return under Ezra, and there's a return under Nehemiah, and uh, that's a, that takes place a little bit later in the history of Israel. Now turn to Ezra, the book of Ezra in chapter 1. We're not going to take time to read this whole book, but Ezra really is the historical context of, 
uh, uh, that gives us the setting that we understand where Haggai actually comes and prophesies to the people. So Ezra chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 11, really give this, this wonderful picture of God working through this leader, Cyrus. And we're going to read just verse 1, but I would encourage you at your own leisure to read this whole section, verses 1 through 11. In the first year of King Cyrus, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Oh, we just read that, didn't we? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And it was basically, you can go back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild that temple. And not only that, I'm going to send you with all this stuff, gold, silver, resources for you to do that and for you to have the finances to actually fund the rebuilding of that temple. Let me go to Ezra chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. Ezra chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 there, in that passage we find that the altar had been built. The central part of the temple, the place where the sacrifices now could be offered, that is built. Ezra chapter 3 verses 8 and through 10 tells us that the foundation now of the temple was also laid. But chapter 4 verses 5 through 6 tells us that opposition comes, intimidation comes. Those that were living in that area were standing now opposed to this whole project. And we pick it up, chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of, king, of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of of Persia. Now just kind of hold on to that. Now jump down to Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. Then the work on the house of God, the house of God being the temple of God that is in Jerusalem, stopped. And it ceased until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. Now go to, back to Haggai, if you would, please. Chapter 1 and verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king. You get the connection there. So Ezra 4, verse 24. In the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. Now Haggai prophesies in the second year of Darius the king. This is the context. So now what we understand is that for 16 years the Jews neglected the building of the temple. And so when Haggai comes in to speak, it is at a particular significant moment in time in the history and the life of God's people. Now friends, let's just pull back a little bit from this and say, what does this have to do with us? I, I, think, I don't think it's a stretch to say that God has called each of his children to take up the mantle of, of responsibility, biblical responsibility, in a particular time and in a particular place. You might say, oh, I love the old, you know, you know Victorian time in England. Oh, it would be wonderful to live there. It may be wonderful to live there, but God's called you to live here. He's called you to live now. This is the time. This is the moment that he's called you to. And then the question is, well, why California? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why am I here? 
Why California? Why the Bay Area? Why Castro Valley or Hayward or San Leandro or San Ramon or Milpitas or Dublin or Pleasanton or some other place in the Bay Area? Why Gateway? God has brought you to a particular place and a particular moment in the history of mankind for a reason. And God works his plan, his sovereign will, in that particular moment. And he calls each one of us in those particular places to be his mouthpiece and to accomplish his will. And that's why God calls Haggai a particular man for that particular moment in time. And that's the second thing here, a particular man for the job. And this man is Haggai. We don't know much about Haggai except for what we have. Um, just this, 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 this letter or this, this particular book. And it's very, very limited in understanding who he is. And that's actually very helpful for us. He is mentioned in Ezra as he relates to Zerubbabel. Uh, I should say not Zerubbabel, but Zechariah, another prophet that is a contemporary of his. But we really don't know too much about him. And, and the point here is this, that God has chosen to work his message, and to work his will through a particular man in that particular place um, and to have a particular job in that particular place. And his job and his role was to be a prophet to the people uh, that were living there in Jerusalem. And we must be careful here because I've, I've heard this before. People say, well, God works specifically with unique people in the Bible. I mean, he chose special people to do certain things. And true, he did choose specific people to accomplish his purposes. But don't think that God doesn't relate to us in similar ways. Or that we are somehow insignificant, that he only actually accomplishes his will through significant people. God works his will even in the mundane affairs of life. And if we believe that he is sovereign, and I hope that we do, because that's what Scripture teaches us, we believe then that he is at work in each one of us to accomplish his will for his glory. Even in the, the simple things of the fact that I just go to work every day, and I'm sitting in a cubicle every day, or I'm a salesman, or I'm a computer specialist, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a student, whatever it is, God has called you in that capacity to be his mouthpiece and to accomplish his purposes. It may seem mundane, but it is no less than what God has called Haggai to do. We may be tempted to say, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not going to impact the world like Haggai or another prophet. But listen, when you stand before God, he's not going to ask you how grand the task was that he gave you. He's going to ask you, have you been faithful with what I have given you to do? So God calls a particular man or woman at a particular time in history to accomplish his will, to give him glory. And God has chosen you at your age for a particular responsibility, parent, husband, son, or daughter, a worker, whatever it might be. The third thing here is this. In Haggai, he gives him a particular message for that particular moment in time. And this message was for the people, the remnant and for those who came back to Jerusalem. Now remember, the Jews had been intimidated. No work had taken place in the temple for 16 years. And so Haggai comes to deliver four messages from God to stir the people up to rebuild the temple. Now we know that these four messages 
took about 15 weeks to actually accomplish them all because each one of them is marked off by this took place on a specific day. So we know that. We can go back and tell you the exact day on the calendar that this took place. But we're going to focus now, having gone through some of this introduction, by, by looking at the first 11 verses. I want to remind you again of verses 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the, the sixth month, on the first day of the month. See how specific that is? The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, or the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, friends, that is separation language. These people. He doesn't say my people. He says these people. Let me try and explain what's going on here. Imagine you're out with your family, and you're going out for a meal, and your youngest child is in the first grade, and they don't like anything that's on the menu. And they say, well, you know, there's all sorts of stuff you can get. You can get fried chicken, you can get, you know, macaroni and cheese, and you start going through all the stuff that they could have. And, I don't want that, I don't want that. And finally, you convince them to get the chicken nugget meal, okay? You're like, okay, this is great. So finally, when the meal comes, the chicken nuggets come, and they are in the shape of stars. And that child says, I don't want these chicken nuggets in the shape of stars. I want them in the shape of dinosaurs. At which point, the wife looks at her husband and says, will you please take care of your son? That's separation language. And God is speaking here with separation language. These people, they're still his children, but there is something that has taken place in their relationship that they have now caused him to respond in this way. God is not pleased with the Jews because they had neglected his house for 16 years. Now, let's get the picture of what's going on here. After the foundation was laid, nothing was done for 16 years. That's a long time, friends, for, for weeds to grow and dirt to settle. I mean, they're going around their business, and there's the foundation just growing up with more weeds. Who knows what they threw there. If there's an empty space around, what happens to it? Usually people dump stuff on it, and it just becomes neglected. Didn't they care? Didn't they want to, to keep what little they had of God's house clean? And apparently not. It seems they were happy going on with their business while the temple lay desolate. They became accustomed to the rubble, the weeds, and the life they were living. Hey, they were back in Jerusalem. They weren't in Babylon anymore. They're back in the land. They were home. And they were building themselves nice homes. And then, of course, we have this expression again, consider your way. Now, with that in mind, the message of this, uh, of, of this particular prophecy, uh, I'm going to look at it really through, the, through three lenses and three things, I think, three approaches, three considerations for these, these people and considerations for us as God is, is seeking for us to ask the question, 
to consider what is going on in our lives and how he is at work in our lives. So first of all, I want you to notice he says this, consider my providences. Friends, it's important that we regularly and habitually take time to reflect on God's way with us. That is to say, we should be regularly and habitually asking ourselves questions like, what is God doing in my life? Is he seeking to tell me something through my circumstances? Am I where he wants me to be? Am I being faithful to the responsibilities he has laid on my shoulder? Now listen to what God is telling the remnant um, about how he is working his providence in their lives. He is at work in their lives. Look at verse 5, if you would, please. And let's see how God is at work. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have a lot to think about, he says. You sow, and you're totally frustrated. Because you're tilling the ground, you're laboring in the field, but there is little harvest. You eat, but it just doesn't enough to satisfy your hunger. You thirst, but there is just never really any quenching going on. Oh yeah, you're clothed, but you're still freezing. You make money, but it seems to disappear in so many different ways. But that isn't the whole picture. Look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you, were brought, when you brought it home, it blew away. Here's the picture. They, they were diligent. They were having vision about their crops. They were, they were optimistic. But it was an empty optimism because all of their effort turned to nothing. Their aspirations blew away in the wind. And, and Haggai, Haggai chapter 2 just kind of reminds us this was something that was happening repeatedly for 16 years. This wasn't, wasn't a one-time occasion. This was an ongoing circumstance. There's just incredible frustration going on in the people. Now, can you relate to that? You determine to work hard to get some extra overtime, but then there's unexpected expenses. There's a traffic ticket that comes up. The price of gas is on the rise, and it just doesn't seem you're making any progress. Have you ever experienced that? You pour yourself into a relationship to honor God, but there just seems to be more conflict that arises. It seems like you're struggling to communicate. You're angry and feel like the world is falling in on you. You're just frustrated. Why is this happening? You're upside down in your mortgage, and you have been working hard to talk to your bank and to get a loan or some kind of an adjustment or maybe even a refinance. And so they send you paperwork and you fill the paperwork out and you send it back and you send it back by, by a FedEx and you have it you know, certified and you call the people after they get it and you say, is everything there that you need to have? And they say, yes. And then about a week later, you get a letter in the mail that says, you failed to fill out such and such paperwork that we requested. And oh, so you call the people and they're like, no, no, everything's in order. And the whole thing is a mess. And it's just frustrating because you're doing 
everything you're supposed to be doing. But it's just not going your way. It's a reminder of Ecclesiastes 6, where God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing, but he withholds the one thing so desperately needed, and that is the ability and the power to enjoy those things. And that is frustrating. Friends, this is not a great place to be in, is it? It's incredibly frustrating when it seems that so many of your efforts in so many different areas are coming up short. These people were frustrated and humiliated and disillusioned as to what was going on. So the Lord continues to speak, and he paints a picture for them to consider. Look now as he continues on in verse 9. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies ruined, while each of you busies himself with his own house. It's my house that is ruined, but you are busying yourself with your own house. The, the, the Home Depots and the Lowe's and the Oshes of Jerusalem were filled with these people busily gathering all sorts of materials to work on their homes. They want bigger kitchens, bigger dining rooms, bigger family rooms, a bigger man cave with all the technology, all the equipment, all the styles that are fresh and new. But here's the contrast. They were busy taking day trips to Ikea, contemplating and thinking about framing their own comforts, but God's house, his temple, get this, their responsibility lies in ruins. What's up with that? And as a result, God has been at work in their lives. Notice verse 10 and follow. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all the la their labors. God, through his providence, was seeking to get their attention. Get this, God was at work in their lives. Isn't it interesting that when we think about God being at work in our lives, we usually think of it in the positive sense, right? But God was at work in their lives seeking to get their attention through the rising prices, the inflation, the, the disappointing crops. All of those were designed to wake the people up from their neglect, to draw their attention to what matters most. That's so why he says, consider your ways. Do from some self-examination. What is it that God is doing in your life. Now you may be thinking to yourself, oh, I see where this is going, Pastor Rod. You're setting us up for a stewardship campaign so we can build God's church. First of all, look around. We pay rent, okay? To go that direction really is to misuse and misunderstand what this passage is really teaching us and why God has, has desired to, to, to have this in his word, to, to press home 
some important truths. They had returned to Jerusalem to carry out a particular responsibility. It was to rebuild the temple. But they had drifted from that responsibility. So please, you can put your checkbooks away. We're not going to do that, okay? This is not a stewardship campaign. There's something far more important than getting your money that this passage is talking about. He's wanting us to consider our ways, to take an honest and careful look at how God is working in our lives and in our church, to examine the responsibilities that he has placed on our shoulders and to ask the simple questions, am I at the center of it all? This is God speaking. Am I the reason you are doing what you're doing? Are you listening to me and my words of instruction? Are you following my will? Are you still pursuing the goal of glorifying me that I called you to? Or have you drifted? Drifted into a respecting me and my wishes, but only really seeking to take care of yourselves with the provisions that I have given you. Oh, wait, wait a second. What's up, what's up with that? God, your stuff is important, we might say, but I do have a job, and I have to attend to that. I do have a family, and I need to raise them. I do have some hobbies, and everyone needs to relax sometime, and the house that I have, it's constantly needing repair. Well, certainly that is true. And friends, there's also a caution here I need to throw out. Because you can come to a passage like this and you can, you can see um, all this stuff that God is doing to these people and we can, we can come to a conclusion, a distorted ideology conclusion that, that this is how God always works with his people. And we run the risk, if we're not very careful in applying this passage, to actually preach and teach a form of the prosperity gospel that basically says this, if you do X, Y, and Z, God promises to bless me in a physical sense. And if I fail, if I'm experiencing difficulty and trial or disease in my life, then God's blessing is not on my life. It's being withheld because of my disobedience or that I simply just don't have enough faith. Now, this teaching, although containing an element of truth, is a teaching that distorts the gospel. It relegates the gospel to if you jump through these hoops, then you are guaranteed God's physical blessing on earth. If you fail to jump through these hoops, you will experience loss of physical blessing on earth. Trials and diseases and and suffering, these are all the result of you not having enough faith and you not being obedient to God. Now, friend, there's an element of truth there because there is the possibility that God is working in your life and bringing you trial or struggle because of your sinfulness or that your sin has consequences that involve trials and suffering and so on. But, friends, the, this prosperity gospel is a gospel of bondage. And it's not honest with the truth. It doesn't square with the Scripture at all. Scripture teaches the basic obedience leads to blessing principles. It's a general truth. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings, brings conflict. That's, I agree with that. It's a general principle. But not guaranteeing physical blessing on earth. 
and not guaranteeing a trial-free life. So let me put it this way. The promises of blessing must be balanced with God's providence. Listen to these passages of Scripture. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Oh, the righteous are going to be afflicted. Yeah, sometimes, and many. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, I'm doing all the right things, in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Well, wait a second. I thought that if I jumped through these hoops, I would have physical blessing on the earth. Well, wait a second. If you think persecution is a physical blessing on the earth, you may have a problem. John 9, 1 through 3. As he, this Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Ah, so even someone's suffering can be the means by which God is declaring himself to be God. Revealing himself through that trial, through that suffering, through that sickness. James 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if you're a prosperity gospel preacher, you're going to say, oh, you're not going to have trials in your life if you do X, Y, and Z. Well, wait a second. It says here, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Who's right? I'm going to lean on God's word. Say that God's word is right. We are to count it all joy because it says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and it goes on. So we reject this prosperity gospel as a distortion of the true gospel, but we embrace the reality that God works his will through his providence, whatever that might be. Trials, suffering, late bills, broken relationships, Now, back to Haggai. In this particular case, the physical struggles of the people of Judah are directly related to their attitudes and behavior. That's the why because that's going on in verse 9. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is God's providence. This is how he is working. He wants us to consider his providence in our lives. How should we respond then? In our case, when we encounter such physical frustrations, we must be willing to ask ourselves some questions. Here we go. God, are you trying to get my attention? Everyone here have a flat tire before? When you have a flat tire, do you say to yourself, God, what are you trying to teach me right now? Not usually the first thing you think of, is it? All right? But there's a trial. There's a struggle. There's something you're going through. God is at work in that trial. And one of the questions we have to ask is, God, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get my attention? And he may very well be through those circumstances. Are you trying to show me how I have wandered from your path? In your love, are you shepherding me through discipline 
as a loving father. Isn't that what he says he'll do to those who wander? So you may be asking, why is my life so frustrating right now? It may be, first of all, because God wants you to wake up, to take hold of those responsibilities that he's given you. And that should be your first response. Say, God, are you teaching me something? Are you wanting me to wake up? Have I drifted? Have I wandered from what you've called me to? That is a right response when those things happen. Or, secondly, it could simply be that what you're experiencing as a frustration is simply a part of God's sovereign purpose for growing you and using you for his glory and for his overarching plan. In other words, your trial is not directed to anything that you have done. It's just a trial. It's neutral. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that in the back of your Bible you have the book of Betty, right? Is there the book of Betty? Have you looked back there? No? Is there the book of Ian? No? Is there a... Is there a book of Chris? No. We don't have specific, oh, God says specifically, here's why this trial came in. Here's why you got sick. And this, this one, this was my sovereignty just at work. It was neutral. I wanted you to grow and learn. But this one is the result of your sin. We don't have that. And so we've got to be very, very careful. We're not just pining away saying, God, you're doing all this to me because of all this, and you're, you're conjuring up all these things in your mind. But at the same time, you need to be healthy to say, God, is there something I need to learn? Are you trying to show me something about my own walk with you that has fallen by the wayside in some way, shape, or form? And having honestly looked at that and said, God, show me more, give me clarity, you may come up and say, no, there isn't anything. This is just part of his divine providence to accomplish his will. We must be very careful with this, but we must recognize that this is important for us to process because we all go through difficulties and trials. And sometimes God is orchestrating circumstances to get our attention. And some of you could share testimony about the fact that you wandered from God and God did things in your life that slapped you silly and brought you back to him, right? And we can summarize the point of God's message through Haggai through the words of the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. And for us, it's not about building a temple, but it's about being faithful to the responsibilities that he has called us to. It's being faithful to the responsibility of him being central in our lives and all that we do. We'll get to that. To not only consider my, prior, my providences now, secondly, he says, consider my priorities. And we need to consider our priorities. We all have priorities, don't we? This guy has a priority. This is a, a, a true ad from the Quay County Sun. It says this, farmer with a 160 irrigated acres wants marriage-minded woman with tractor. When replying, please show picture of tractor. Okay. This is his priority. This is what was important. What were their priorities? What does the text reveal to us concerning their priorities? And I would say this. First of all, it reveals to us what they actually believed. We pick that up now in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's not 
yet come. Well, how do they get to the place where they're saying the time has not yet come? How can they be convinced that that is true? That's what they were believing. That's what they were saying. It isn't that they were saying that the building of the temple was unimportant. No, it was very important. But they had come to believe that it just wasn't the right time to build. This is not a knee-jerk reaction, but an attitude that developed among the people over time. It was a sophisticated attitude. It was a rationalized attitude. It was an attitude that was justified in their minds. It was an attitude that ended up being corporate and a common theme among the people. It seemed to be the right standard attitude of the people of that day. And if they got together, they would be saying, if they were sitting in Starbucks having a conversation, yeah, we want to see that temple built. And, and God he's, he promises it's going to be built, but it's not the right time right now. They'd all come to the place that they're convinced that that is true. There's an attitude going on. How had they developed this attitude? Well, they were distracted by their circumstances. God's providence. Life in Judah had been tough. It's true. Just be honest about it. If you look at their history, it revealed that God had promised to rebuild the temple, and they believed that he would. But not now, not yet. If you look at their economy, it revealed that they were going through some really difficult times. And God certainly wouldn't want us to abandon our families and abandon our crops and, and, and start rebuilding the temple in such economic hardship times. God is reasonable. He understands the difficulties that we're facing. So we'll build, but not now, not yet. And then there was this opposition. How can we expect to build this temple when there's such opposition at the highest level? Letters had gone back to Persia. Interaction had taken place. Those around the area did not want this to go on. And so let's stop. We're intimidated. We're, we're you know, they're, 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 causing us to be afraid. We don't want to cause any trouble here. And so this, this history, this economy, and this opposition all kind of intermingled together to feed an attitude that said not yet. And it was an attitude that was rationalized and justified to be okay and right and good. It seemed wise in their eyes, but they were not being obedient to God. Their not yet was a rationalized and justified expression of their sinful will in rebellion against God. Let me say that again. Their not yet was a rationalized and justified expression of their sinful will in rebellion against God. And friends, we can find ourselves in that place. When we have wandered from God's responsibilities in our lives, that we justify our behavior and our attitudes. And so God comes to, to these people and he wants to wake them up and say, hey, listen, let me remind you of what I've called you to. You've wandered, you've been, you've been neglectful, and you've been intimidated, and all these different things, and you feel justified with this attitude, but this attitude does not honor me. Not only are we told how they thought, but we're also told how they behaved. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
Is it time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? There's clearly a comparison going on here between the houses of the people and the house of God. God says, my house lies in ruins. Your houses are quite comfortable. (laughs) Now, what's interesting here is this word paneled, these paneled houses. What is that talking about? Two possibilities here. The idea of paneled means a covering. In other words, it could be saying that their their homes had had a roof. Um, The word also is used to describe the the materials, in particular, plush materials that their homes likely and potentially had been furnished with, good quality materials. And the begging question is this, where had these materials come from? How had the people been able to pay for these paneled homes? If you go back to Ezra chapter 1, we're not going to read it, there we find that Cyrus sent the people off with materials so that the temple could be built, gold and silver and herds. But then the Jews who were living in Babylon, rejoicing at the fact that a whole bunch of people were going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, they emptied their pockets and they sent gifts because they wanted the temple rebuilt, and they sent them away with free will gifts. Gold, silver, goods, animals, all of these resources to help them live and to provide for the actual um, building of the temple as well as from Cyrus in particular some of the particular artifacts that would be in the temple. Now these resources ultimately provided by God were now being used to panel their houses. We're not building God's temple. What are we going to do with this wood over here? I have an idea. Anyone have a skill saw? Because we can make use of it. We wouldn't want it to sit out here in the rain and rot now, would we? So how about we use it to kind of make our houses nicer and more comfortable? What had begun with God moving the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and allowing the people of God to return to Jerusalem, and funded by the king and God's people, had now come to a standstill. The vision of the people had turned away from God's plan and had been slowly and subtly replaced by personal plans. Attention to God's house had been replaced by attention to their houses. They had allowed their circumstances to eclipse God's purposes. Friends, the question for us is, has anything like that happened in our context? Now, don't think about the physical things, although that can be true to some degree. But life has all sorts of different circumstances, isn't it? And we can be drawn away from things that are important to God, from responsibilities that he has given us to carry out and to to stand firm with, and we subtly drift over time, and we, we get drawn away from what God wants us to be doing to be doing the things that we want to do. It's the old frog in the kettle syndrome. It's, you know, you, you, you boil a pot of water, and you throw a frog in there, it's going to jump out. It's going to say, this is hot. But you put the frog in there with cold water and turn it on slowly over time. It's going to adjust, and finally it'll die in the water. It won't think to jump out. And subtly and slowly, these things happen over the course of 16 years. These people finally came to the place to say, hey, listen, our attitude is right, and our behavior makes sense. 
So they had allowed their, 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 themselves to adjust their, their difficult circumstances by rationing away, or rationalizing away their responsibility that God had placed on their shoulders. The end result is that their behavior shouted to the pagan people around them that they served an absent God. Those people knew that they had come back to rebuild the temple. People around you, hopefully, know that you are a follower of Christ. Is he central in your life? And how do you demonstrate that by your attitudes and your action? That is important to God. And he comes to us and he says, am I where I need to be in your life? Are we pursuing the things of this world rather than seeking God? Are we saying to God, let me get my education first, then I'll see about following your will? Or let me get married, and then maybe we'll establish a family and we'll go to church and do all those important things. Or let me get established in my career. Or let me experience life. And after that, then I'll, I'll, I'll keep you central. My friends, all those things, education, marriage, career, and life experiences, those are all things that are all part of God's plan, but he wants to be central as you go through those things. And we might be saying, it's not that I think that you're unimportant, God. You are, but I don't need to seek you fully now. Not yet. You understand the things I'm going through. You understand my economic situation. You understand it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You want me to be careful and wise, don't you? So we rationalize ourselves away to neglect the responsibilities that God has placed on our shoulders and the main responsibility to keep him central in our life, for him to be the Lord of our life, for him to dictate how we approach life. And friends, the primary application here is not building God's church. The primary application here is this, that the temple was where God met with his people where their sins were atoned for. It was his gift to his people. And so when we think about the application, we're thinking here about how does God interact with us? Well, he is where we are going to meet him through Christ as we spend every day pursuing to live our lives for his glory. We don't have to go to the temple anymore. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. We have this wonderful awesome privilege to have this relationship with Christ. And I know we're here sitting in church. I know we're saying this is important to us. But it's possible to gather for worship and God not be central. It's possible to go through the, the routines of religion and that's it. And it really doesn't involve God. Or maybe we bring him in a little bit here and there, but he doesn't want a little bit. He wants everything. He wants it all. He wants to be central. He wants to be the priority in our lives. And so this is the question that we need to be asking. Am I worshiping God in my life and with my life in accordance to his will? And that takes us to Romans 12, 1, which we know very well. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is living every day in light of the fact that 
Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That in coming to him, I have abandoned all of my desires. I embrace all of his desires. But the thing is, when I embrace his desires, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He puts new desires in your heart to live for his glory, to keep him central, and to see his will accomplished. God wants to move us from the not yet to the now is the right time to get back to what he's called us to, to reaffirm him as central in our lives, to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, to worship him now fully and with joy, to delight in him. And when we do that, we'll have a completely different outlook on life and our circumstances. Interestingly, the missionary William Carey tells of this particular story. He talks about his brother who had determined to go into missions, but he asks for prayer for his brother. He says, pray for Felix. He has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the king of kings. Now just think about that. What is most important? I know you'd say, well, couldn't he serve God as a... Yes, he could. The point here is when we are living our lives with God central, it changes our perspective completely as to what's really important for his glory. What are your priorities? Consider your priorities. What's important to you? The third thing then is this. Consider my pleasure. Jump down to verse 8. Here's what God is saying that they should do. Go up to the hills... And bring wood. There was an abundance of wood in the hills. And build the house. Now let's get back to the job. You stopped. You've neglected for 16 years. You don't have to wait another 16 years to get going. Get going now. All right? Go to the hills. Bring the wood. Build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Are we giving God pleasure, friends? Do you think of your worship in that way? Do you think of the fact that you keep him central in your life as giving God pleasure? Do you think that when you adore God, when you keep him central, when, when his will is what your heart longs for, that it gives God pleasure and that it glorifies him? Friends, get this. Our God is a pleasure seeking God. Now, if I said that without any context, we could get it all wrong, couldn't we? His pleasure <laughs> is when his children maintain his presence centrally in their lives. He delights in that. He takes pleasure when we hunger and thirst for him. He takes pleasure when we long for his word to satisfy our souls rather than something else. He takes pleasure when we lean on him for guidance and direction in our lives rather than other kinds of counsel. He takes pleasure in our obedience. He takes pleasure in hearing our prayers. He takes pleasure when we pursue holiness in our lives. He takes pleasure when he is the priority. He takes pleasure 
when in the midst of difficult circumstances, trials, sickness, struggle, that we are quick to ask, what is God trying to teach me, to show me through this? Don't you want God to take pleasure? He does. And your responsibility is really a responsibility of realigning. It's really a responsibility of placing God in your life where he already needs to be. So just in conclusion, I want to put it this way. Troublesome times require a spiritual rethink. When you face a difficulty, when you face a trial, when it's something that that comes to you, it could be huge, it could be pretty mundane. It puts us in a place where we're doing a spiritual rethink. We're saying, God, what is it maybe you're trying to show me? What is it you want me to understand about myself? Have I wandered? Have I sinned? Are you trying to do something to wake me up? And it may not be, but we should at least be willing to ask that question right from the start. Is he central or is he peripheral? Am I pleasing him? Or am I pleasing self? You know, there's an old saying, remember back from years ago, there's only two options on the shelf, pleasing God and pleasing self. We want to put him where he desires to be in our lives. And I want to leave you with this one last verse of scripture, one we all know very well, because I think it balances things out. We are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the priority. And all these things. But what are all these things? Provision of daily need. Clothing. Food. Drink. He doesn't promise that life is going to be this wonderful utopia. In fact, the reality is that life is not going to be that way. Life is going to be full of difficulties, full of disease, full of struggle because we live in a sin-cursed world. But now we live in the sin-cursed world with a view that God is sovereign and that God is not just thinking about our lives here on this earth. He's also thinking about our lives ultimately entering to heaven. And this is simply a journey that we are going through. And so we need his wisdom, we need his counsel, we need him to be central in our lives as we go through all these circumstances. And as we do so, we do so to bring glory to his name and to please him. And friends, this is the first message to this remnant people. How will they respond? And in the same way, God is saying to us, consider your ways. Consider the road you've been traveling. Consider the road you're on and consider the road that is ahead of you. What does it look like? What am I saying? How do you need to realign your life in such a way that he is central? Lord, we ask now for guidance, for counsel, for strength, for wisdom. That your Holy Spirit would take, Lord, your word and knead it into our hearts. And Lord, that it would expose areas in our lives, Lord, that you you want to be the focus of our attention. I ask, Lord, if there's anyone here today that knows that they have been wandering off the path, that they have neglected what God has called them to, Lord, I ask them to, to humbly and joyfully, Lord, come 
boldly to the throne of grace and seek restoration and forgiveness and find the strength and the ability to, to get back on the path, so to speak, and to pursue godliness and to pursue Christ-likeness and to pursue what it means to please you with their lives. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who forgives and in particular forgives when we are repentant, Lord, when we declare our sinfulness before you. So, Lord, help us today to be honest, to be transparent. And, Lord, as you, through your Holy Spirit, work, Lord, would you allow us to respond in a way that would please you, Lord, not to fight, but to hear this this message with joy as a means by which you are desiring to wake us up and to place yourself back into the place where you need to be. Lord, we don't deserve such counsel. We don't deserve such grace. We don't deserve such mercy. And yet, Lord, you lovingly pursue us because you want to be the object, Lord, of our pleasure. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, thank you for what you have recorded for us, Lord, in this, this little minor prophet through the mouth of Haggai. Would we, Lord, consider our ways in your name. Amen.